Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 115, How the Story Changes, an interview with Sean Smucker, coming to you on Thursday, December 6, 2018. First of all, everybody who writes nonfiction, yay, I'm really excited every time I can find a nonfiction writer to talk to so that you can get some more help and uh, advice and tips. I'm excited because I know that anybody who's listening who writes more nonfiction or any at all, you're not getting a ton of tips on that uh, in the last year. Can you believe it's been almost a year we've been doing this podcast? Very exciting. But our guest today, Sean Smucker, if you remember the name, was on in July talking to us about his newest novel. But today he's talking to us about nonfiction, specifically a memoir that he wrote called Once We Were Strangers. And it's about meeting this fellow who is a Syrian refugee in the town where Sean lives in Pennsylvania. And it's really interesting because the book that Sean started out thinking he was going to write turned into a different kind of book. And it was so interesting as we talked about it. It's a really, really great book. And I hope you go out and and get a copy of it once we were strangers. It's so um, just, it moved my heart so much. It made me just want to go out and be more friendly to people, which... Uh, my husband would be like, that is so weird, Kitty. You're friendly to people that don't want you to be friendly, like the cashier at the grocery store. My, my, my reply, though, is the cashier at the grocery store was totally friendly back, though. I think she was just waiting for someone to be friendly to her. So anyway, it still, it really moved me. Listen to the interview. I'm not going to try to recreate the excitement of how I felt when I was reading it, but I'm just telling you, it's a good book, and you're going to really like this particular interview. If you write nonfiction, if you're interested in writing memoir, Sean's got some great tips and um, just telling you the story of how the process of the book came about. It's totally cool. I'm going to stop talking so that you can listen. Today's guest is Sean Smucker. Sean is the author of Christianity Today's 2018 Fiction Book of the Year, The Day the Angels Fell, and The Edge of Over There, the sequel that released in July 2018. He lives with his wife and six children in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Kitty. Hello. It's good to have you back again. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. And and it's funny because like you were on the show just in July, you and I are talking in November, this will probably come out in December. But um, so it's kind of funny that I'm interviewing you about two books coming out in the same year. But I can't think of how it came up in conversation. And I was like, what you write nonfiction too? Tell me about your new book. Yeah, so uh, the new book is called Once We Were Strangers. It's a story of really how I how I came to have a friendship with a Syrian refugee here in Lancaster. And um, yeah, it started off when I, I was doing some volunteer work for church world service and that that's kind of what connected us. Wow. It is a stunning book. I I just happened for anybody who's watching on YouTube to have a copy of it right here. It's (laughs) also got a beautiful cover. Uh, This book is so interesting. Like I could not stop reading. I was like, well, I could finish the book and not take a shower, but I probably should take a shower. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so tell us, how did you get started on, because I, I don't think, I'm, I'm like 
15 or 20 pages from the end. It's killing me not to know the exact yeah. end before I talk to you. But, um, but in general, I know that, you know, you're friends. Yay. But, yeah. uh, so when I was reading the book, I was thinking um, that you didn't really say how exactly you got involved in, in writing his story. And, mm -hmm. and it sounded like you were going to write his story and it ended up to be more of your joint story that maybe you didn't know that was how yeah. it was going to turn out. How did yeah. that happen? Yeah. So I, when I first met Muhammad, um, I had been doing some, some writing for church world service, mostly for asylum seekers who were here in Lancaster and a couple of refugees just doing spotlights on their stories and it was at that time uh, in 2016, I guess, when everything started really going bad in Syria and there was kind of a national fascination and, and wanting to help. And I felt that same desire. And so when I met with the folks at CWS and said, do you have any Syrian refugees? I'd love to meet, you know, meet someone and see if there's anything I can do to help. And so they introduced me to Muhammad. And I remember in our first meeting, something that just sticks out to me um, when we first met, I kind of had the idea for the book, but we had no guarantees, you know, that we would get a publishing deal or anything like that. And we were sitting there and I was trying to explain the process to him. We had a translator at that point. And I said, um, you know, Muhammad, I just want you to understand that it, the book is not for sure. And so it may be that nothing comes of this, you know, nothing comes of our meeting together. And through the translator, he said to me, um, that's impossible because we're friends now. Um, it's impossible for nothing to come of this because we're friends. And I remember that had such a huge impact on me because I, you know, I didn't even know this guy. And, and I thought I was concerned going in that maybe he had been uh, sort of jaded by the anti Middle Eastern rhetoric in the U S and that, you know, maybe he wouldn't like me or he'd be very skeptical of me but he wasn't, he was so gracious and welcoming. And that was really just an introduction to me of what my friendship with Muhammad would be like, because he continued to be that way. So welcoming, so open, so hospitable, um, you know, from there on out. So it was, it was quite, quite an interesting experience. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a great, it's been a great, great time for me. Wow. That must've been like, I don't know at what point that you kind of started realizing like you're getting way, uh, if, if you don't mind me saying it, it's like, like you're getting way over blessed in this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 And you know, I think that was the other part of your question about, um, you know, when did I realize it wasn't just going to be a, a story about Muhammad? And that's a really interesting question because I definitely went into this book feeling like, um, this is just going to be Muhammad's story, you know? So I co-write and ghostwrite for a living. And so I'm used to that. I'm used to just simply writing books about other people's lives and about what they've been through. And um, I, I don't, I can't pinpoint an exact time during the book when I realized it, but at some point I did realize, wow, this book is not just, and not even primarily necessarily about Muhammad's experience or about his, his journey from Syria to the U S although we include that I started to realize that it was really going to be about, um, about how I changed and how, um, how my friendship with Muhammad and getting to know a Muslim person this well, uh, was going to change my life and change the way I looked at friendships and all of that. So 
it was it was certainly not what I expected in the beginning, and it was one of the harder books I've ever written because of that that change that came. But it was also one of the I think one of the most rewarding. Wow. Well, I have to say that one of the things that and this is um, kind of segueing into one of the questions I had for you. One of the things that I found so interesting about reading one of your novels just a few months ago, and you have a really elegant but simple writing style that I really appreciate. But watching it, watching the story come to life in in this real story and you know i mean this i sometimes nonfiction is just not the right word like like it's this yeah. real you know in the heart you can see it happening it's happening in my own heart you know as yeah. it's happening mm -hmm. in yours kind of story yeah. um the simplicity of your storytelling seems to even more enrich the emotional um element that is almost foundational in i don't know i just feel it more in your writing there's something about it i can't quite put my finger on and i wonder if you know what i mean or if it's just kind of the way you write and you're not really sure how that happens well it's very kind of you to say that i think um i think part of the simplicity did come up out of the story and it it was something that it took me a little bit to embrace because I did really honestly envision this as sort of an action story in the beginning. Like I thought this was going to be about Muhammad dodging bombs and, you know, um, barely surviving the border crossing and living in, you know, some kind of a violent refugee camp. And, um, and so I think a lot of the simplicity that you, that you feel from this comes from the fact that it is such an ordinary story. You know, it's, um, maybe ordinary isn't the right word, but it's, it's just a story of life. You know, it's a story of friendship. And I think in many ways, those are really simple themes that, um, you know, even though they're deep and there's a lot, a lot that I think we need to talk about when it comes to friendship and community and uh, welcoming in the stranger, I think um, they're also just really kind of simple, simple things. And so yeah, I, I know what you're saying. And I think that that was part of the reason that that came through. Yeah, it seemed to me that it was also um, on purpose or not channeling the simplicity that Muhammad seems to be saying that his life is loving his children, taking care of his family, working hard and and drinking coffee with his neighbor. That seems to be um, what he values in life. And I think that somehow that comes through to me and makes me think, oh yeah, do I value it the same way he does? Is there any way I can slow down and enjoy that more? Because he's really enjoying his life this way. Yeah, that's so true. That's such a good point. I mean, I think that was part of it. I think Muhammad's desire for a simple life, you know, his desire for just happiness and peace and things that I think we really take for granted here a lot is, you know, the idea, I, I think of it now, but I, I didn't think of it before Muhammad, but this idea that I can get in my car and drive, you know, a thousand miles to Florida to see my family um, in a couple of days and I don't have to go through checkpoints. I don't have to worry about violence. I don't have to worry about, you know, some faction of rebels that um, maybe has blocked the highway. I mean, we just take so much for granted here in the way that we live our lives and the everyday things that we do. And so 
Um, you know, the fact that my son can walk a mile to his high school and I don't worry about it. Um, you know, for a lot of Syrians, a lot of Middle Easterns that move here, uh, even to Lancaster, when they first discover that there's not a busing system in the city, unless you're, I think it's two miles away from the school, um, that's really hard for them to to understand that their kids can be safe walking that far to school. And so, yeah, I think the simplicity of his desires for life and um, the things that he wants are just, they're, you know, I think they did come through. I think you're right. Yeah. And yet it's funny because since I have a different experience of life, I was um, thinking about the things like um, constantly having to stop and use the translation app or asking someone, can you read my mail for me? Is this real mail or junk mail? I I don't know what it says. I only recognize that word means and and that, you know, so there were other things too that I was like, I mean, I've, I've been feeling more so since I moved to Sweden, even, um, even more so than living in Australia or New Zealand, um, the feeling of being an immigrant and, um, and just my heart feeling so much more, I don't know, just full and, and sympathetic, but empathetic, really, um, to what it's like to be a really highly educated person who um, used to have, you know, this kind of a life. And now you're someplace where people don't know anything about you. And it's only their own kindness or not that will help you (laughs) today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I, so I tend not to uh, discuss too much uh, religion and politics in terms of, um, of being um, divisive on the show. And so I won't do that. But this is a very timely book as far as what's going on in the world, what's going on in the United States, um, our feelings uh, towards immigrants. And we also, Sweden has a ton of immigrants. So I actually Mm. feel very kind of um, part of a crowd, even though I'm not technically immigrant i'm here for a job but um but it's very interesting like the different ways that different countries governments or what or or just Mm. neighbors look at the idea of someone coming in who is other yeah yeah i you know it's interesting it's so interesting to me that this idea of helping especially refugees but also immigrants has become such a political issue because you know for the last 40 years it really hasn't been. Um, it hasn't been a political issue for that long. I mean, you know, so the refugee resettlement program was was began, I think, in the late 70s or early 80s and has been strongly supported by both parties, um, you know, for 40 years, 35 years. So this, this sudden fear that's been injected into the conversation, I think is really unfortunate because it's an unfounded fear. I mean, all you have to do is look at the history of refugees and understand that there's never been a terrorist attack um, by a refugee, by someone who's here on refugee status. There have been very, very few violent crimes committed by refugees. Um, and so it's, it's a totally unfounded fear and it's, it's just really unfortunate. I wish that we could, as Americans, as a country, remember, um, remember our roots of charity and of empathy and, um, and, and really just somehow come back to the reality of the situation, you know, instead of 
instead of being so fearful, but, but this is where we're at. So it's conversations we need to have. Right. And honestly, while reading your book, I was thinking to myself, who all can I recommend this book to send a copy of the book to like, who do I know who is part of an organization where these are some of the things that they think about, talk about, try to work with in the community. This is such a, um, a kind and generous look at the situation. Um, and I love the idea that, well, I don't know, um, again, if, if you like meant it to be this way, but by the time you get to the end of the book, it's a story of two fathers who grew up in the opposite ends of the world and are very, very similar, despite yeah. what the world looks at as being very different. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's so true. You know, I mean, so I'm an American, a Christian, um, I grew up here, um, and then you have Muhammad, who is Muslim, Syrian, grew up there. Uh, the world would very quickly pit us as enemies and as, you know, people who are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet, you're right. I mean, we couldn't be more similar in the things that we really want in the world and the things that we want for our kids and for our wives and for our families. Um, it's in fact, I would I would say that Muhammad is much less selfish than I am. If there are main any main differences, uh, it's that he's much less concerned with his own his own sort of um, progress or path. Uh, he's he's much more concerned with the prosperity and peace for his boys, um, and part of that is because of what they've been through. I think, but. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing how similar we are. And I, I wish that everyone could realize that, you know, that no matter how different you might feel from, you know, the, the El Salvadorian uh, immigrant coming through Mexico or the Syrian immigrant or, you know, no matter how different we might feel from them, we're, we're so similar. We're so similar. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's a great book. I have to say for everybody listening, once we were strangers, I strongly recommend you, you go find it and read it because um, it's, it'll make you look at your own life and ask yourself some questions, which I love. And so let's move into the writer side of it as a writer. I mean, that's probably most writers I know, particularly um, people like you, who this is your profession, um, your, your idea in writing anything down is to make someone feel something, think something. Is, is that pretty true for you as well? Sure. I mean, I think, I think with this story, um, I wanted people to see, see the truth, you know, see a small example of someone who's coming here and to understand that 99% of the people who come to the U.S. are exactly like Muhammad and their desires and in their, you know, their place in society and all that. So, I think that was my, that was probably my main goal was to say, Hey, look, here's, if you're, if you're responding to the media and you're hearing what people are saying and you're afraid, um, here's a real true story of someone who is very representative of refugees. And hopefully this will help you have a more realistic view. Yeah. Yeah. So as a writer, tell us a little bit about 
the process when you're getting ready to start a novel versus getting ready to write um, something in nonfiction. So when I was reading The Edge of Over There, which is this just wonderful kind of, it's whimsical, but it's an action adventure. And it's, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I love The Edge of Over There. <laughs> it's the book that we talked about in July. If anybody uh, wants to go look at that episode, it's one of the July episodes. And, um, and it, that book made me just want to stare out the window and stare at the sky and the clouds and daydream and just think about, you know, uh, those creative thoughts that turn into something on paper eventually. But when I'm reading your memoir, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these are such powerful words. Like I want to change the world. It's, it's the tagline of my right now workshop and podcast, you know, write a book, change the world. I totally believe it. I believe it no matter if it's fiction or nonfiction, Mm -hmm. but do you come at it from a different um, mindset or how can we help um, listeners who maybe are thinking about writing one or the other or are like, when is she ever going to interview someone who writes nonfiction? Today's my day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I think um, when I, when I start writing a novel and when I, when I um, begin that process for me, it, it's really about trying to discover discover what I don't know. Like, I feel like there's something there, whether it be a world or a character. So I think for me, it's about trying to create or trying to discover this thing that I know it's there and, and I'm trying to find out more about it. So it just involves going deeper into my imagination. And, um, and I love that. Like, I love I love the sense that there is already a story there. I just have to discover it. Um, whereas for me, nonfiction is, is much harder. Um, it feels more like work to me. I enjoy it, but it still feels more like work because I don't feel like I'm quite as free to um, just sort of explore around. You know, for me, it's, it's more about... Um, it's, it's more tangible. And so I feel like I have less, less wiggle room, I guess. Um, so with, with writing, uh, once we were strangers, you know, it just takes more time with Muhammad. It takes more interviews. It takes more research. Uh, and that's, I, I I enjoy the writing, but, but that upfront part, is is a little bit more hard work whereas for the edge of over there you know it's sometimes it can be a little bit more elusive because i'm thinking oh what am i missing like what is it about this character that i haven't quite discovered yet that will clear everything up or that will lead me into the next part of the story um but i don't feel like it's um i don't feel like it's something i can research to find i i feel like it's just something i have to go deeper into my imagination yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I would, I would think, um, based on you know my own uh, view of writing fiction and nonfiction, um, there's a certain amount of I have to be careful not to play with this too much, so that I don't distort truth into somehow making it not quite true, not, not, not even in facts, but to make the the I don't know, not the emotion of it, but the the somehow making distorting the truth. I don't know how to, yes. how do you say that? About no, you're totally, that's facts. totally, no, you're right though. Because I feel like, you know, with Muhammad's story, it would have been very easy for me to try and emphasize the drama and to make it 
something that it really wasn't, you know, to turn it into an action adventure escape story. Um, now, sure, there are elements of what he did that were not safe and elements of things that his family went through that were dangerous. But if I would have really played that up, I think I would have been, the story would not have been true, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I definitely, I agree with that. Now, if somebody listening is either thinking about maybe ghostwriting or has um, maybe started like taking the first steps towards ghostwriting for somebody else, what are some of the, um, uh, not really pros and cons, but uh, pitfalls to avoid or things to keep in mind that you might be able to offer? Yeah, I think the first thing, whenever you're collaborating with someone, it's so important that you, uh, that you have everything written out, all of your expectations uh, you know, so I have a, I have a very basic contract that I use, but how many words is it going to be? What is the payment going to be? Um, when is, when is that money going to be paid? Um, you know, who has the rights to the story when you finish? Is it going, are you guaranteeing publication? Are you going to self publish it? What are you providing them in the end? A word doc, a PDF doc. I mean, it's just really, really important. And then, to also have some things in place where, okay, if we go over the word limit, then what are we going to do? Who's going to pay for what? And um, I, I think those, that's probably one of the most important things just simply because you're working with somebody else. So to make sure everybody's on the same page, uh, what happens if you write the first three chapters and they hate it, you know, right. and they, and they, and they, and, and they, and you both realize you're not the person to write this. Okay. Well, they've paid you X, X amount of money. Do you need to give them money back? Are they going to, you know, you just need to think through every scenario you can think through and then write that out and make sure that you have all those bases covered. Um, that's really the first thing. The other thing that's important for me is that I'm, um, that I'm covered uh, legally because uh, you are writing a story that someone else is telling you, but you really have no idea how true it is. You have no idea if the things they're saying about other people are true. Yeah. And so um, generally in my contracts, I always make sure that, that the other person will cover me in case of, you know, if there's a lawsuit about invasion of privacy or um, libel or anything like that, that, that they would defend me in that case, because I can't, I can't possibly research and I'm not a private investigator, you know, so I can't find out if everything they're telling me is true. Those are probably the two biggest practical things I would say. Um, yeah. When I write a book for somebody, I generally interview them for about, it usually takes about 12 to 15 hours of interviews to get 40 to 50,000 words um, in my experience. Wow. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what I shoot for in the beginning is trying to, to carve out that time and to figure out when we're going to do that. But, yeah. yeah. And then how do you organize the information? Are, are, I assume at some point everything becomes typewritten, even if you're a handwriter, but um, can you give any tips on organizing? That could be a lot of information and you may not actually be yeah. using all of it in the end, right? Yeah. So um, the 12 to 15 hours of interviews, I, I record those and then transcribe them. And then what I typically do is once I have most of the information I need, I take the transcriptions in one word doc and then I have another word doc that I start to organize in the, in the order that the story is going to be told. And then I just start moving stuff over into the order I want to use it. So I take the transcriptions, get them in order. And then once they're in order, I'll open up a brand new word doc and I'll just retype, basically rewrite everything. Um, 
in, in its pretty close to final written form. And that's one of the reasons that the co-writes that I do sound so much like the people, um, because it's literally their words, you know, it's their way of talking, their way of speaking, their way of telling a story. And I, I just really see myself as cleaning up what they've done. And, and also during the interview process, trying to draw out the details that, that a reader might find interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I loved how, um, he must, it must've come up at least three times. Cause I can think of three times it came up the, um, the mortar shell hole in his dining room wall. Yeah. And I was like, what? And the thing is, is that like as a new writer or somebody who maybe is um, newly writing nonfiction, maybe, you know, any part of the process that's new to you, you have a tendency. I think a lot of writers have a tendency. I do um, to overdo it. Like you're trying so hard to get it right that it just, it go, you're going too far with it, but just, just your simple way of expressing. And again, like you said, it came out sounding like the way Muhammad probably and talks about it but it's just like a bomb came through your dining room wall and you covered it up but you still look at the scar on the wall and reminding yourself all the time like but but it's so simple yeah you know I can see somebody wanting to write three pages on that (laughs) yeah yeah it's I think a lot of that's probably style too you know um and there were some limitations with this book that I, you know, I wouldn't have experienced before necessarily just because of the language barrier. So that probably also contributed to sort of the simple, this sense of simplicity. Um, You know, we just didn't have, we used a translator for one or two of our meetings, but then he was sort of picking up on English and he preferred to try and tell me the stories himself. So uh, I I wouldn't have been able to really get the level of detail that I might even try and get with other co-writes, but I think it was, I think it worked. Yeah. Now here's a question that I've always wondered when it comes to memoir memoir writing, which um, on the one hand, this is because you're so much a part of the story, but it's not really your initial purpose wasn't to write a memoir, was to write somebody else's story. Right. So, in memoir writing, and again, for anybody who might be listening and, and is just looking for advice, um, do you have any ideas or advice on how you, how you let the reader know that this is your story? Like, for, I'm the third of four in my family. So out of two parents, four kids, that's six points of view. Yeah. So like we know logically if there are six people standing here looking at a clown they're going to describe it in six different ways but when you try to tell a story of the way that you see the world how how do you think about how it might affect or offend other people who saw that same event totally differently from you is Mm -hmm. that something that you've thought about like do you think that you'll write another memoir that's really personal about you your story um yeah i don't know I don't know. It's, it's a really good question. I mean, that's one of the huge challenges of anytime you're writing nonfiction, um, especially memoir, you know, a lot, it's interesting. A lot of the co-writes that I've done for people, um, I remember one in specific was for a woman who was 90 in her nineties. I think she was 94. And so we were basically just writing her life story. And there was a point when she was about 30. So we're talking 60 plus years ago when, um, her husband died, her first husband died. And 
she had very specific memories about what had happened that day and, you know, how it had gone about. She had taken her son to baseball, his baseball practice, and then she had driven down to the marina. And that's where she found the news that her husband had had a massive uh, stroke. And she got into the ambulance and they drove to the hospital. Well, her son, who was like nine years old at the time, maybe eight, eight or nine, it, you know, and now he's in his 70s um, or maybe 70. Now he was saying, no, mom, that's not how it happened. I was, I was with you when you drove to the marina. I remember standing there at the edge of the water and looking out at the dock where dad, where dad had, you know, had his stroke and they were working on him. And she was like, no, you were not there. <laughs> and so it, it was a very interesting lesson to me in this idea of perspective and, um, and how we just see things differently and remember things differently, especially the more time that has passed, uh, the more likely it is that you're going to remember something very, very different. You know, my wife and I recently had a situation where uh, some friends of ours said, you know, do you remember when we did this, when we went, I can't remember where it was, but we went somewhere with them and I have zero memory of it. I mean, this was, you know, probably 15 years ago for a day or for a weekend. And I just find it so strange that, that memory would not be anywhere in my brain you know, something that I went somewhere with other people and we did things and I have zero recollection of that. And so I think with memoir, it's just very important to that, that when you're writing it, that you approach the writing of it with a lot of grace, a lot of mercy, a lot of humility, um, understanding that, that our memories are not solid state things that, that get filed away in our brain and then we go back and pick them out and look at them. Memories are actually tracks that are worn as we continually think about a past event. And so we change that track basically to our whim. Like we think that our memories are solid and that they represent hard facts, but they really don't. They really just represent how we want to think about something um, so I think, yeah, with memoir, I think it's just really important that we remember that as we're writing. Yeah. I don't know if I told you the last time that I interviewed you, but I'm such a neuroscience geek. If, oh, is that right? Yeah. If it had been a thing when I was 18, there would have been no question what I was going to Oh, wow. That's so cool. So I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, yes, exactly. Because you're, yeah. the, you know, a constant uh, constant use over a certain path of your neurons firing yes. just makes that path, you know, wider and stronger. And the first time that I really realized that I, I was a little bit afraid of writing any kind of memoir thing was when I realized that what looks like a memory in my head of um, something that happened when I was a toddler. And I know for sure that it's not a memory. It's a story that was told to me over and over and over yes. and over again as yes. a child. Yes. And I was thinking that, you know, that 70-year-old man could have had the story of his father's death told to him and yeah. then at another day been standing at the, at the docks yes. and thought that at some point those two days were the same day. So true. I totally get that because I start recognizing things in my mind going, wait a minute, is that really true or is that the way somebody else has told you yeah. or the way that you now want to believe it to be true? 
you know, yeah. you don't necessarily want to believe bad things or if a lot of bad things have happened. Uh, at one point, I realized that almost all of my memories of my father are bad ones, but only because they were so strong. And I was like, I really need to focus on trying to dig up more good memories so yeah. that I don't have only bad memories of a person yeah. that would be just yeah. sad. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And so, yeah, again, I think that writing memoir, especially when you're writing about something that happened years ago, you know, with, with Muhammad, it was relative, it was in the relatively recent past. And, um, and some of it, you know, even as I was writing it, it was happening. And so I didn't feel like that was necessarily something to be that concerned about, but, but with his memories, for sure, you know, like this was from five years ago, they were very traumatic. Um, and so it's possible that, you know, some things were not remembered exactly as they happened. And I, I think that just, I'm not really sure exactly what to do with that, but I think we just need to be aware of it as memoir writers, as nonfiction writers, and to keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose if you're not hanging something on, you know, a certain kind of memory or something that you're not sure is a fact, then it's easier to just go, this is probably really close to the way it went, hmm. but it's not... Yeah this element is not the point of the story. Therefore, I'm not as concerned with getting it 100% right. Do you think that is uh, Sure. Yeah, possible? sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You look at it. Okay. Now, so you lead into another question that I had when I was reading the book. It is so interesting to me that um, the way that you describe walking into the CWS building to find the woman who's going to introduce you to Muhammad, um, some point in there, um, there is kind of the, the thought process or the way that it's written as I'm remembering it. <laughs> so yeah. here we go with the whole, is yeah. that really? <laughs> um, it, you, you mentioned, uh, however briefly that, um, so now we have just elected a new president and, um, and we as readers, because of some time has passed, know that that is actually going to be, um, a bit of a turning point in refugees stories, refugees coming to the U S. So even though you, it's like one sentence, like <clears throat> it starts in this very, um, very near past. And then it ends. The epilogue is February of this year, 2018. Then mm. the book was published in October, 2018. This is a very different publishing schedule from a novel, which may have to wait 12 to 24 months to come out. Can you talk a little bit since you've been on in both of those paths? Like what, how is the publishing process different? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the reason, one of the reasons we had that epilogue in there um, and it did come very late in the publishing process. So it wasn't like um, we waited until the epilogue was done to, you know, to start wrapping things up. I mean, by the time we put the epilogue in, it had a cover. It was, it, you know, that, that was probably pretty close to when the, the uh, catalog was released for the, for the fall of this year. Um, so some of those things, depending on the flexibility of your publisher and the printing schedule, can be added, you know, closer to the end than you might think. I mean, so even now with the novel, I handed in the first draft of this novel in July of this past year, of this year, um, and it will come out next summer. But we're still kind of furiously pounding through edits and, and making some changes and adjustments. And so um, I, I think that one to two years, it does depend a little bit on your publisher. It depends on on how smoothly the editing process goes. And we got to the end of the, 
of the editing process and my editor Kelsey just felt like it would be really nice to have something there at the end. So, um, so that's how we threw that in, but it was definitely last minute and it was definitely, um, you know, if, if, uh, once, once I wrote that and it was in, it was like, that was it. It was in cause we couldn't, we couldn't really make too many more changes at that point. Yeah. So the, um, the mostly final, uh, version of, the memoir once we were strangers so that was probably done except for the epilogue by about when do you think that was probably um about a uh, let's see i usually have to submit that about a year ahead um okay. fiction or non-fiction yeah mm-hmm. so All i right. think i submitted that last winter november-ish yeah october so november it, so maybe the process isn't or the timeline isn't necessarily that different you just knew that there was going to be you know probably the uh book designer was holding a space mm-hmm. of X number of pages. And yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's, I haven't seen that much of a difference um, in the timelines between fiction and non. All right. Well, that's good to know. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly is. Um, it, it's very interesting to read a book that has, um, you know, anything, even if it's a couple of pages, that's like, wait, that was just a couple of months ago. That's yeah. so interesting. It feels like the story is even more immediate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is really interesting. I like talking about the differences between things and helping people who might want to do one way or the other, or, or maybe there's people like me who, who are interested in both and seeing how Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I think that's something that, I don't know, I feel like we're maybe these days we're really encouraged to sort of specialize or, you know, pick one and really focus on that. But that's something I feel really fortunate about um, in my experience that I've been able to do YA fiction and now I have nonfiction. And next summer I have just a regular novel, a standalone for adults coming out. And um, I think that it's helped me as a writer to try and work through these different genres. And it sort of gives me a chance to see, what sticks with people, what, you know, which style are people um, really enjoying or most interested in. And so, yeah, I would encourage people just to try different stuff because you never know which, which you might really fall into. Yeah. And I'm sure that um, there's a lot of stories. I know that I read some, I can't think of, you know, which I, I read all the stories about, you know, the writer's call from an agent or the call from a publisher. So, yeah, but I yeah. know that I've read stories where, um, you know, they wrote this kind of book and this kind of book and this kind of book and submitted them. And maybe the first one or two different styles or genres or whatever they wrote didn't hit a nerve with somebody. But then this, this next one, that's the one that got the agent and the publisher. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah. So interesting. I love talking about yeah. writing. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, well, do you have any last thoughts on, um, on this process or this book or? Um. I don't know. I think, I think I was, I was hesitant about writing this book for a couple of reasons. I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy talking politics with people. And I was concerned that, um, I was concerned that this would kind of open up a, a can of worms that I maybe wasn't prepared to, to deal with. But now that I've done it and I've had some really good conversations with people and I've, I've actually gotten emails and messages from people who've, who've said, you know, I gave this to, um, you know, some relatives who are, who are very, very conservative in their thinking about 
um, immigration and things like that. And she said they really, they came around, like it really challenged their thinking. And, and so that's, that's really all I wanted was to continue this conversation and to challenge some of the, the thinking that's out there and the thinking that maybe we've absorbed about the topic. So, so yeah, so I just hope that people will share it and um, you know, if they, if they find it compelling, then that's great. If they, if they don't, then that's fine too. But it it was a good process for me. And I think uh, I always encourage people who have any, any affinity for writing, you know, to process their lives through that because, you know, for me processing my friendship with Muhammad through writing has brought so many truths to the surface that I wouldn't have had. I wouldn't have held on to, you know, if I wouldn't have written it down. Um, But now that I have, I, you know, I feel like I have these solid things that I can take with me. So. Yeah. And I don't think that I could possibly be overstating the case to say that the process that you went through and, um, and your conversations and time spent with Muhammad and his family have had to have had a massive, loving, positive, welcoming impact on him and his wife and his four little boys. Well, not so little anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, he's since moved to Michigan, so he's no longer Michigan. in Lancaster. Yeah, and <laughs> I miss him a lot. We stay in touch. We talk on the phone, you know, probably once a week or so. Um, but yeah, I... I I, I do get the sense that, um, you know, we, we will always have um, a friendship and we'll always stay in touch. And, you know, I, I hope he moves back to Lancaster someday. And he, I think he does too, but um, yeah, it was, it was, it was such a huge benefit for both of us, you know, for him, I'm sure in the practical ways that I might have been able to help, but also for me and just kind of remembering how important friendship is and how important community is and those things. So, yeah. That's awesome. I love it. Well, I would love to keep on talking to you more about all this. I kind of want to say, tell Muhammad, some Michigan girl that he doesn't even know is like, <laughs> you're cool. I like you. <laughs> I will. Yeah, and Marati. Is that how you say her name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. All six of them sound just, um, you yeah. know, fun and cool. Nice people. Yeah. I wish yeah. they were my neighbors. Oh, yes. and I wanted to tell you because I think this is another important part. So I've been... I grew up in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the woods, but then because of work and stuff, I've been living in cities like most of my adult life, big cities. Um, and I currently live in the third biggest city in Malmo, Sweden, or I mean, Malmo is the third biggest city in Sweden. And I live in a big apartment block. Okay. And when I first moved in, I think it's been three or four months now that we've moved in, I was looking around and it was weird because I was like, I feel so much more confident because I think of Swedes as being... Um, you know, tall, blonde, blue-eyed, really pale-skinned people. But I'm looking around and there's all these people who are Swedish who came here at some point or their parents or their grandparents came here at some point and lots of blonde people. But when people were moving into my apartment block, I would be talking to people and, you know, there's somebody from Croatia and somebody from Latvia and somebody who's half Swedish, half Pakistani because they have, you know, one parent, you know, two people from two different cultures met and stuff. And I'm reading this book going, I have got to go knocking on more neighbors' doors this Christmas and taking people yes. quicker than just being yes. a neighbor. Totally agree. Yeah. And I feel the same way. I feel the same way. 
That's awesome. Well, listen, um, we will let you get back to work. Um, you've got in the next novel coming out. Very exciting. I'm very tempted to mm -hmm. say, you know, you should probably just come back on the show again. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> to like, oh my goodness, we keep getting the same writers, but it's just that, ah, oh, these writers with these great books. So tell us, <laughs> tell us, Sean, where can people find out more about you and your books? Okay. Yeah. So they can find me at seansmucker.com or seansmucker at Facebook and on Twitter and it's S-H-A-W-N. Excellent. Very good. Thank you so much for being on the show again. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's great to chat again, Kitty.